The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. We will be in Acts chapter 14. There's a little outline on the back of the bulletin, if that helps you. We'll be looking at verses 8 to 28. I think this is our fifth sermon on the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. Part 5, the title I put there, Miracles and Mayhem in Lystra. Lystra will be the city that occupies most of the passage we're looking at today in Acts 14, 8 through 28. Well, up to this point, those of you maybe who haven't been with us the whole time, or maybe you're visiting today, it seems like God always brings us a visitor or two. Every week we're thankful for that. Uh, just to bring you up to speed and context, we are in the book of Acts, 28 chapters in our English Bible, written by Luke, the physician, probably in around 60 A.D. He was an associate of the Apostle Paul, traveled with the Apostle Paul. Some of the things, particularly on Paul's ministry, Luke gets to see firsthand because he was with Paul. Sometimes he wasn't and had to rely on Reliable sources like Paul himself and interviews that he took and compiled this as he was led by God's spirit so that the church might benefit from this history of how the church started, how it got launched and reminding us, showing us very clearly today even what our mission in the world is. So the first 12 chapters, the emphasis was the church's beginning with the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and the day of Pentecost when the church began around 29 AD. Jesus went back to heaven, sent his spirit, and then the church began under the leadership of Peter, the apostle, the 12 apostles really, in Jerusalem. And then they spread beyond Jerusalem into Judea and also Samaria. And the headquarters was Jerusalem. And they filled the entire city with the doctrine of biblical Christianity and the gospel. And that's the first 12 chapters. And then there's a transition in chapter 13 where now uh, God is going to emphasize his ministry to the rest of the world, to the Gentiles. And that's under the leadership of the Apostle Paul, initially starting with Barnabas. And it changes from Jerusalem headquarters to now 300 miles up north in Syria called Antioch, a a pagan city, a a Roman city, a cosmopolitan city, many Gentiles and Greeks predominantly Barnabas brings the gospel there along with other people. And there's a major Christian revival in this pagan city. Lots of folks get saved. God leads a few to establish a church there. Barnabas is brought on as a mature Christian man. He's sent by the church in Jerusalem. He ends up staying there in Antioch, 300 miles north of Jerusalem, to this kind of new headquarters of Christianity. And Barnabas tries to pastor, but there's just too many folks, so he goes and hunts down Paul, who became Saul, who was converted, and Barnabas successfully finds Paul, Saul, and says, hey, you need to help me shepherd God's flock here in Antioch. So Paul does. And so Paul and Barnabas and three other men end up being the first pastoral team of that massive megachurch in Antioch of Syria for an entire year. They're teaching, they're preaching, they're discipling, they're establishing leadership, preaching the word of God. And then after about a year, God calls Paul and Barnabas to missions to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so that church in Antioch prays for and is committed to supporting Paul 
Barnabas and a young assistant named John Mark. And they go, and for two years, Luke highlights in Acts 13 and 14 what happened on their first missionary journey. Two years, many events, much time has transpired, and Luke doesn't give us everything that happened. He's very selective, yet he's very purposeful. So everything, because he's selective, I believe the Holy Spirit prompted Luke as to what to include and what to leave out. So everything in Acts 13 and 14 is very significant, and God wanted us to know it and be aware of it, to learn from it, but also to be accountable for it. But two years transpires. We are now at the end of that two-year period today in Acts 14, 8 through 28. They started off commissioned by Antioch. They sailed from uh, the Mediterranean coast. Their first stop was in Cyprus, that huge, massive island that was the home of Barnabas, familiar territory. Preached the gospel in the first city there on the coast. And then they traveled 100 miles over the island of Cyprus to the other major city on the west coast where the governor of the island was and the governor of that island who worked for the romans got saved because of the message of the gospel that's huge traveled 100 miles on that island and then they took off the sea and went north up to what we call asia minor in the province of galatia and they landed there and as soon as they landed there john mark deserted them he bailed That could have been after six months of rigorous, difficult ministry. We don't know why John Mark left, but Paul was upset by it. He felt abandoned by the young man. But Paul and Barnabas continued, and they went up north, and then that's when they uh, spent time in many cities, but the Holy Spirit through Luke highlights just about three or four of ministry in those cities. First was Antioch of Pisidia, and then they went over to about 85 miles going to the east to Iconium or Icon, which we talked about last week. And then Paul and Barnabas basically got, there was a revival. They preached the gospel. Uh, They're preaching in synagogues, giving Old Testament history, but telling Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament. They experience response, positive response. Some of the Jews are believing, oh, this is the Savior, Jesus, amen. And then there are other Jews who are hard-hearted and resist and oppose the gospel very aggressively, sometimes physically. And that's what happened in Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium. The Jews who were resistant literally created a mob and chased Paul and Barnabas out of both cities. The last stop in Iconium tried to stone him to death for blasphemy. And Paul and Barnabas were able to escape and get away, although there were many who did believe in their wake. So there are Christians in every one of these cities who remain behind. And so... Paul and Barnabas get chased out of the next city, and now they flee to our city today, Lystra. let's go ahead and look there. Verse 8, the next city there is the city of Lystra, just about 40 miles uh, from the last city that they were at in Iconia. 40 miles? Remember, they don't have airplanes. They don't have cars. There is a road, but it's, it's difficult terrain. It's dangerous because there are highway robbers and bandits and pirates, literally, on the road along the way, thieves, robbers, thugs. So it's not easy. We don't even know how they travel. I don't know if they were on camels or walking or what, but 40 miles, it was difficult. But they continue on persevering in the strength of Christ, and they come to this city of Lystra. And at Lystra there, they arrive at this city. Let me tell you about, we'll go to the first point here. I, I broke this narrative up into five points there, as you can see in the outline. Uh, But it is one continuous 
story by Luke. And so we'll read it and approach it that way, highlight some points and see what God might glean for us to apply to our lives. But the first point there is number one, and that's verses 8 through 10, as they arrive at the city called Lystra. Point number one is a miracle of validation happens there, a miracle of validation. Paul speaks for God. Barnabas speaks for God as well. Barnabas is Paul's partner. Barnabas is preaching. He's teaching as well. But definitely in chapter 13, it was Barnabas was the older senior saint. He took Paul and asked him to join the team. But what Barnabas learned as they were together is that God had commissioned Paul to be an apostle. A unique apostle, a different kind of apostle than Barnabas was. Barnabas was a faithful servant. He was an ambassador for Christ, but Paul is a unique Apostle Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul writes 13 letters in the New Testament as an apostle. So Barnabas quickly realizes that God has given Paul a very unique ministry that Barnabas doesn't have. And so quickly, out of humility, because that's Barnabas's character, a humble, godly man in tune with the Spirit. And even though Barnabas starts as the leader on this mission trip, it was Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. But quickly into the missionary, first missionary journey, it all of a sudden becomes Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. So Paul assumed the leadership, and in humility and in deference to the will of God, Barnabas deferred to that. He bowed to that. It's a great testimony on the part of Barnabas. He doesn't care who the quarterback is. He just knows he's on the right team. We are serving God. We are servants. So it's Barnabas and or it's Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. And so they go into the city of Lystra. But here there's a miracle that takes place. And I think the miracle is primarily validating the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So let's look at this amazing miracle. They're chased out of town from Iconium. By the way, they got chased out of town in Pisidia, Antioch, months ago. Months and months and months ago. Got chased out by some angry Jews. Little did Paul and Barnabas know that some of those angry Jews were not content with just chasing Paul and Barnabas out of town saying, good, we got them out of town. Some of them decided, you know what, let's go hunt them down. And that's what they're doing. They are traveling 100 plus miles to find these scoundrels, Paul and Barnabas. All the way from Pisidia, Antioch. And, so, and then they come to the next city on the road there, and it's Iconium. And they start talking to people and figuring out what's going on. Oh, those two scoundrels, oh, they came your way? See this wanted poster? Paul, Barnabas, we're looking for these guys. Oh, you know these guys? They came through this town? Real? Oh, they caused this disturbance. Oh, that doesn't surprise me at all. Oh, heresy, yes. Blasphemy, yes. Deserve the death penalty? Oh, you tried to stone them? Oh, too bad you weren't successful. That, that's what they're doing. They gain recruits. They got a lynch mob. And now they're going to leave from Iconium. So now you've got unbelievers from Antioch and Iconium now going 40 miles to hunt down Paul and Barnabas. So Paul and Barnabas on a human level, they're not aware that that's going on behind the scenes. Here comes the lynch mob. Meanwhile, they are focused. We are here to serve God. If there's an open door, we're taking it. We have one mission. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ to set sinners free. That's their focus. So they go into the city, a Roman colony, a pagan city. Apparently, there weren't enough Jews there to have a synagogue because usually they would go into a synagogue. They don't hear 
a synagogue was a captive immediate audience to proclaim the word of God. They don't have that here. They didn't have enough Jews to have a synagogue, probably. So they needed a crowd, and God gave them an idea or a way to have a crowd to preach the gospel providentially. So verses 8 through 10, there's a miracle. So at the city of Lystra, there was sitting a certain man. It's out by the gate, kind of like in chapter 3 of the book of Acts. There was a man at the gates who was paralyzed from his mother's womb, from birth, who couldn't walk, who was at the gate. He was at a strategically located place with high traffic so that he could be seen by people so he could beg for money. And apparently that's where this guy was, at an obvious open public place where he could be seen, this lame man. And so as they walk into the city, they walk into this town. That is one of the first things that Paul and Barnabas see is a lame man who could not walk. God uses that for his glory. And at the city of Lystra, there was sitting a certain man without strength in his feet. This is almost identical to the way the layman was described in Acts chapter 3, that Peter healed. A certain man sitting there without strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. And I guarantee the entire town knew it. That's important. Because a lot of times when we see these so-called miracles on television at these so-called christian crusades with the miracle worker and he picks somebody out of the crowd and is able to stretch one leg and make it equal length to the other leg and it's kind of interesting that nobody seems to know who that person is that they're doing the miracle on they never met that person in their life they don't know is this an actor is this a plant in the audience what's going on here trickery chicanery not here this is a man who grew up in this town it was a small town Everybody, no doubt, probably knew this man, and they knew he couldn't walk from the time he was born. That's why this is so powerful. There's a reaction from the entire city over this miracle. So he can't walk. Verse 9, this man was listening to Paul as he spoke. So the gospel goes first. So God doesn't use miracles to bring people to Christ. God doesn't use miracles to save people. There's only one thing God uses to save people. It is the gospel. It is the content of the gospel message. That is the only thing that can save. God doesn't use archaeology to bring people to Christ. God doesn't use natural theology to bring people to Christ. God doesn't use experiences and mystical experiences to bring people to Christ. God uses one thing. It is the content of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that can enable salvation. Romans 1.16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That is the message about Jesus Christ, the God-man, who lived sinlessly on the earth and came to die for sinners, was crucified, absorbed the wrath of Almighty God the Father on the cross on behalf of sinners, willingly, was buried, three days later, rose again from the dead, ascended back into heaven as the Lord of Lord and Savior of the world. That is the gospel message, the good news. And that is the only thing that God will use to save a soul. But there is a miracle that happens here. And miracles are very clear in terms of why God uses them in the Bible. They're always used to validate truth, to validate the message, to validate the preacher. So God doesn't bring people to Christ through miracles. God brings people to Christ through the gospel. But the gospel is a supernatural, miraculous message. And anytime anybody believes that and gets saved, that is a miracle. I think it's the greatest miracle of all. 
when God saves a sinner and transforms their soul. So Paul sees this man. He starts preaching the gospel first thing. It's not, uh, pull up a chair. I'm going to perform a miracle. Voila. No. It's, let me tell you about Jesus. Now, these guys, for the most part, they're pagans. They're Greeks. They don't know the Old Testament. They don't know the Hebrew Scriptures. They don't have a historical context that is properly informed through Scripture. They're pagans. Some of these pagans maybe know nothing about the Old Testament. They don't know about Moses and Noah and the ark. Maybe they don't know Adam and Eve's names. But they are religious. So probably Paul just begins with the gospel. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ, Savior, that you're a sinner, how you got that way. And let me tell you what the solution is. It is only through Jesus Christ. So he is preaching the gospel. That's why it says, verse 9, this man was listening to Paul as he spoke. What was he speaking about? He's preaching the gospel. That phrase is used all throughout chapter 13 and 14, wherever Paul goes. They were preaching the word. They were preaching the word. They were bringing the gospel. They were proclaiming the word. It's always the same message. It is about Jesus Christ. That's what missionaries do. So he's preaching about Jesus Christ. Uh, This guy, he's lame. Maybe he's never even heard of the name Jesus before in his life. Oh, this is interesting. Paul's probably preaching in Greek. Greek was the universal language. Although these people in Lystra had their own colloquial language that Paul and Barnabas did not know. The Lycaonian language it was called. Sometimes they spoke in that, but they did apparently comprehend and understand Greek. And no doubt Paul is probably preaching in Greek. So they understand it. They understand what he's saying. And this man was listening to Paul as he preached. Who, when Then Paul fixes his gaze upon this man who's sitting down. I believe God's spirit is leading Paul as an apostle to be able to do this. He fixes his gaze on him. Acts chapter 3 says Peter fixed his gaze on the lame man. Luke chapter 5 says that Jesus fixed his gaze on the man who couldn't walk, who was dumped into the Bible study, the paralytic that Jesus healed. Jesus healed a paralytic, a man who couldn't walk. And he did it with a miracle, thus validating that what Jesus said was true. The miracle that Jesus did in Luke 5 validated that Jesus was a true prophet and from God. Because that's what miracles are for. They are to validate the messenger, to validate that that was a prophet sent from God. That's why in Luke 5, Jesus looks at the man who couldn't walk. And all he says to him, here's a guy. They rip the roof out and they bring this guy in who couldn't walk. And they disturb the Bible study. And the house is crowded with people. And there's tiles falling through the roof. And dirt all over the place and he plops him down right in front of jesus and jesus looks on this man who can't walk and all he says is son your sins are forgiven what was the first thing he said when you would have thought get up and walk he didn't say that he said your sins are forgiven he made a declaration that only god almighty could make god is the only one who can forgive sin your sins are forgiven well how did how could jesus do that jesus knew the faith of that man who was there he knew the hearts of men when god the father allowed him to do so And the Pharisees were incensed when he said, your sins are forgiven. And so Jesus said, okay, fine. You don't believe that I have the ability to forgive sin? Then believe me by virtue of the miracle I am about to do to validate I speak for God. Arise, take up your pallet and walk. And the man instantly got up, miraculous. So the miracle validated Jesus and his message. And that's why the apostles could do miracles, same thing. The fact that Peter did a a miracle in Acts chapter 3 and healed a layman, that validated that he was of God, that he spoke truth. That was very important to the Jews, the Jewish understanding, but also to Greeks. Any human seeing a, a miracle, wow. These people must be from God. So that's what's going on here. So Paul fixes his gaze upon this, this man. 
uh, had seen that he had the faith to made well. How did Paul do that? How do you see that somebody has faith to believe? I can't, I don't have that ability. This was a supernatural giftedness that God allowed Paul to have, at least in this instance. Maybe it was the gift of faith. Maybe it was just an apostolic ability. And that's what happened. And so Paul says with a loud voice after his preaching, he says, stand upright on your feet. Now everybody in the audience knew that man, he can't do that. The stranger comes into town and tells this lame guy to walk. And God allows a miracle. It says he leaped up and began to walk. Leaped up. Didn't get up slowly. Wasn't progressive. Just leaped up. Instantly healed. This was a miracle. This was supernatural. This was instantaneous. This validated that these two strangers that came from town, Paul and Barnabas, spoke from God. And the crowd is watching. Uh, The man who got healed, probably just excited and ecstatic, and who knows what he believes, is like, wow, this is awesome. Peter did the same thing, arise and walk. And it says that Peter grabbed that guy by the hand, and he jumped up. And then he's jumping all over the place and praising God, it said. So he was a believer. He believed the message that Peter gave. Um, A couple important things in terms of the validation of Paul's ministry. This is important uh, at this point. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says the signs of an apostle, the sign, same on the Greek word. That means like the credentials of a legitimate apostle. The signs of an apostle are, and then Paul lists three things. Signs, wonders, and miracles. Dunamis is one of those words. Dunamis, dynamite. The ability to do supernatural miracles, like, like heal a guy. Whenever God allowed Paul to do that. So Paul had the credentials of a true apostle. Peter had the credentials of a true apostle, this ability to do these unique miracles. That hasn't been true throughout church history. I don't, I don't believe it's true today. There aren't guys walking, going around, or ladies around today, doing the same kinds of miracles the apostles did in the New Testament. This was 2 Corinthians 12, 12, a sign or a credential of an apostle of Jesus Christ. There were 12 apostles of Jesus and one apostle to the Gentiles. That was Paul, and they all had this very unique, limited gift to validate the truth of the word of God. This is also important for Luke to highlight this, that Paul was able to do the same kinds of miracles that Peter the apostle did and the other apostles. This was very important. Because in the minds of some Jews or other people, especially the Jews, they are questioning the legitimacy of Paul. Uh, he's a, after all, he was a Johnny-come-lately. You got the 12 apostles of Jesus who started the church, did these amazing miracles, Paul was a persecutor of the church, an enemy of the church, for five years. You know, Paul didn't get saved until probably five years after the church started. So the reputation of the founding apostles has already been established. Peter the Great and his 11 co-apostles. And then here's Johnny come lately or Paul come lately. And that was to his detriment in some towns, some cities, some communities of believers where some people kind of, they weren't too sure about Paul. Is he really a believer, first of all? And is he really? He's an apostle? How arrogant. He's writing in all of his letters, Paul, an apostle of Jesus. Hey, he's not one of the 12. He wasn't with Jesus for three years. How dare he? So there was a growing uh, skepticism about Paul, even in the Christian church. That's why we saw in Corinth at this same time, just a few years after Paul preaches in Acts 13 and 14, Paul goes to Corinth, he plants a church there, and there are people there who become Christians who are skeptical of Paul. That's why they say, you know what, Paul? Uh, 
we like Peter better. And that's why they said, uh, we are of Cephas or Peter. Because they were questioning Paul's legitimacy. Is he really an apostle? Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, the entire epistle, to defend the fact that he was a true apostle. Really. It's an apology about himself. Trying to tell them, I am an apostle, just like Peter and the other apostles. And so that's why I think it is important for Luke to highlight these miracles that Paul did on the same level that Peter did the apostle, and even on the same level that Jesus, the God-man, did. Thus validating he truly was an apostle sent from God. This is not the first miracle that Paul did, by the way. We saw in Acts uh, earlier on this missions trip, in Acts 13 on the island of Cyprus, when he was confronted by that magician who was overturning his teaching to the governor. And Paul called, put his finger in that guy's face and said, you are of the devil, knock it off. You're a deceiver. You are a liar. And you're going to go blind from the wrath of God. And boom, instantaneously, that man went blind. And the governor, Paulus, saw this and he was overwhelmed and he heard the truth of Paul. But he also saw that miracle and it said, because he saw the miracle and heard Paul's message, he believed. Because God validated the ministry of the apostle Paul with a miracle in front of the governor because the governor had this magician as his counselor and then he likes the things paul's saying and it's like wow i got to choose between which one of these guys is telling the truth boom miracle god validates it and that's how god used miracles among the apostles so validation let's go on to point number two so you got this crowd no doubt it's in public it's during the day the whole town maybe hears about this miracle of this man born blind they are amazed. They believe it. They don't doubt it. They know a miracle just took place. Closed case. End of the story. No. Nope. Because they made some of the folks made wrong conclusions about the miracle that they saw. Did you know that miracles need to be interpreted and miracles need to be clarified? This is, happens all the time in the Bible. People see a miracle. They it's a legitimate miracle, but they interpret it wrong. And so that's what these pagans did here they saw a miracle but they came to the wrong conclusion and look what they did uh point number two the pagans misplaced adulation there's a miracle of validation and then misplaced adulation uh, adulation praise honor glory worship you give to someone that's adulation so they see this miracle and they start worshiping paul and barnabas when they see this miracle starting at verse uh, 11 and when the multitude see huge massive crowd this wasn't done in isolation mostly gentiles probably a bunch of pagans when this massive gentile crowd in pub, public daylight saw what paul had done this amazing miracle they raised their voice saying in the lycaonian language so paul and barnabas did not understand what they were saying but they said it in unison. The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And so the crowds, they start worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas are like, oh, yeah, listen to all that loud noise. Oh, this is cool. I wonder what's going on. What are they saying? Wow, they're getting rather excited. Barnabas, what do you think is going on? Verse, verse 12. And what they were saying, they began calling Barnabas Zeus. The great Greek God, also in, in the, among the Romans, he was known as Jupiter. And then Paul, they were calling Hermes or Mercury. Those are two of the greatest gods in the pantheon of false gods that the pagan Greeks and the pagan Romans believed in. And they were calling Paul Hermes or Mercury because he was the chief speaker. He was the spokesperson. 
So they saw a miracle and they made the wrong conclusion. We see a miracle, made the wrong conclusion. These guys are gods. Just like the Pharisees made wrong conclusions and the Sadducees, when they saw Jesus do a miracle, they saw the miracle, they didn't deny the miracle, they interpreted it wrong. They came to the wrong conclusion. You, Jesus, do miracles by the power of Satan. Wrong interpretation. Verse 13, and so uh, the crowd is going crazy. The gods are among us. By the way, verse 13, and the priest of Zeus. So the main, one of the main religions in this city or town of Lystra was the worship of the Greek pantheon of gods. And Luz, uh, Zeus was one of the main gods. And, of course, for us, it's a false god. He doesn't exist. But in their mind, Zeus did exist. And in their pantheon, they had gods for everything. The Greeks did and the Romans did. And if they had a specific need in life, then they, they aligned that need with a specific God. It's because there were so many gods. So if you need, uh, you need to fall in love, you're single and you want to get married, you go and solicit Cupid, the goddess of love, whatever your need might be. Or Aphrodite, you need to get pregnant and you pray to the goddess of Aphrodite. Or uh, you need to be protected on the seas because you're a sailor and you pray to the the uh, Saint Elmo and on and on. That, that would be the Catholic version. But in, in among the Greeks and the Romans, they had a pantheon of gods where you pray to a specific god or god. That's what's going on here. So Zeus reigns supreme in this pagan town. They even uh, had a, a temple of Zeus and other pagan temples there. There was a legend uh, in vogue at the time that apparently uh, Zeus and Barnab- uh, Z- sorry Zeus and Mercury had come to visit. Or go back, sorry. Uh, Zeus and his buddy previously, oh, Hermes. Yeah, Zeus and Hermes previously visited Lystra at some point. We don't know when. And the Lyconians, or the, the folks at Lystra, they did not welcome Zeus and Barnabas. And apparently Zeus and Barnabas were um, veiled in like human appearances. And the town rejected them, didn't want them around. But there were two people in the town that did welcome them and gave them hospitality, according to the legend. But the rest that didn't welcome them were judged and punished by Zeus. And so that's kind of their history. So they fear now Zeus and his other god and the many gods. And so this time they're not going to make that same mistake. We are going to welcome Zeus and Hermes and we're going to give them worship and praise. We're going to make sure we don't get judged this time. That is the background of what's going on here. And so, verse 13, the priest of Zeus, so everybody's talking about it. They go to the local priest. Uh, Zeus is here. He's in our midst. He's down on the ground. He just did a miracle. We need to worship him. Let's get uh, our garlands of worship together. Verse, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. And so these people now are just pushing in on Paul and Barnabas to give homage and worship and obey, uh, uh, worship them. And Paul and Barnabas finally begin to figure out what is going on. This is misplaced adulation, which brings us to point number three, and that's the apostles' corrective proclamation. Wow, I, we can't accept this false worship. Usually humans like a positive response from their audiences, right? When you win somebody's favor, adulation. I mean, it's kind of fulfilling to have somebody come up and ask you to, for an autograph, right? Oh, yeah, gladly. I like the praise. That, that just appeals to sinful human nature. We all want to be liked. Well, Paul and Barnabas don't lose, but they want the glory to go to God and God alone. So they are not happy about this misplaced worship and adulation. 
So they have to give a corrective. They have to set these people straight. They have to interpret the miracle. That's for 14 and following. So look at verse 14. But, see, there's the contrast. Okay, Paul and Barnabas finally figured it out what was going on. When they saw the oxen about to get chopped and bloodied all over the place and the worship wreaths and the priest from the temple coming towards them, wow. Barnabas, does this look like what you think it looks? It looks like they're about to come and worship us. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they figured it out. They tore their clothes. They were not happy. This was a sign of uh, distress, repentance, disgust, rebuke. When a Jew, especially a Jewish leader, would rip his garments, there is something wrong. This was a sign of mourning. Sometimes it was a sign of blasphemy. So Paul and Barnabas literally began to rip their robes. As an outward sign, this is bad. Stop. So they're tearing their robes, Paul and Barnabas. They rushed out into the crowd. So they, they go and approach the crowd and they start crying out, yelling, stop, stop. In the Greek language, most of them no doubt knew Greek. Verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? Why are you responding the right way? Why are you wanting to worship us and offer us sacrifices? Taking the glory away from God and putting it on mere men. Verse 15 is key. Paul says, we, Paul and Barnabas, even though we did a miracle, we are also men of the same nature as you. We are no different. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes we think even as Christians that the apostles were like made of marble. Think of the apostle Paul. Oh, he was so holy. Wow, I don't measure up. And Peter and all the saints of the Bible. And actually, no, they were just mere men, just human. You would actually, if you got to spend extended time with Paul or Peter or Moses, over time you would be extremely disappointed. You would. If you spent extended time with me, you would be extremely disappointed. You would. And if I spent a lot of time with you, I would be extremely disappointed. We are all of the same nature. Fallen, frail, weak, sinful, compromising, self-centered humans. Saved by the grace of God if you believe in the gospel. Paul is emphatic about that. We are just mere men. We have the same nature, constitution as you. We are not divine. We are not deity. We are not gods. We don't deserve any glory. We don't deserve any worship or prayer, uh, praise from you. Well, they do have one unique thing. They preach the gospel. That's the middle of verse 15. We do preach the gospel, the good news. That's what's supernatural. Preach the gospel. Don't confuse the message with the messenger. I'm glad we don't have a problem with that in Christianity today, confusing the message with the messenger and esteeming gospel preachers. I'm glad we don't have the cult of personality in Christianity. Today. Wait, wait a minute. No, we do. That problem's been around for 2,000 years. We got the same problem that Corinth had when they, they liked certain Christian preachers. Oh, I like Peter. Well, I like Paul. Well, I like Apollos because he's more erudite and has Greek education. Well, we're more spiritual than the rest of you because we, we like Jesus the best. <laughs> Literally, that's my rendition of Acts, or 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The personality, the Christian, Christian personality cults, which we have, it's alive and well today. You know where it's the worst? In seminaries. Where I used to go and where I currently teach. It is very common for seminary students. They all, as a matter of fact, on my survey, when I, whenever I teach a seminary class, I put a personal profile and you, just kind of all interesting facts. And then my last question is always, who is your favorite preacher? That is a dangerous question. And they fill it out and then they give it to me. And they don't know I'm going to read this out loud in public. 
And so I start reading, you know, preacher. Who's your favorite preacher? John MacArthur. And then I get all offended and say, well, why am I not your favorite preacher? How are you going to get an A in this class, pal? That's usually what I say first. And then somebody will say, well, it's John Piper. And then somebody will say, well, it's this guy or it's Chuck Swindoll or it's this guy. And then we'll all fight about it for about 20 minutes. And it's kind of, we actually think that's fun. About who's the better preacher and why. And anyway, uh, but you got to be careful because you could get in, involved and sucked into the cult of personality. The glory belongs to God and God alone. Jesus and Jesus alone. Not Mr. or Mrs. Super Christian. Why? Because every one of those super Christians, whoever they are, they're just like Paul said. We're, we're no different than you. We are of the same nature as you. We are all undeserving. We are all weak and sinful. We can't rob God of his glory. And there's a danger in doing that in Christianity today. And there has been all throughout church history. This is though this idea of esteeming men, uh, giving undue praise to humans, isn't just in Christianity. It's actually in the very nature of sinful, fallen humanity. This is called idolatry. This has been around for 6,000 years. It's manifested itself in every religion on planet Earth, especially false religions. This was a mark of false religion, according to Paul in Romans chapter 1, of giving human beings undue praise and worship. Pick a religion, you can find it. In Hinduism, I think of the Mah- Mah- uh, Mah- Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who came to America during the time of the Beatles, and basically told his disciples that he was living deity. And those who followed him, they believed it, and they literally bowed to him, and they worship him as deity. And what's worse, he tells them they can become the same. They can become deity as a human being. That is the heart of Mormonism as a religion. The goal in Mormonism is to become a deity, become a god. That plays right into this. We have it in even certain pockets of Christianity historically. So you had this, this was rampant in Greek and Roman mythology. And then Christianity starts to spread. And then some Christians start taking Roman paganism and Greek paganism and assimilating it into Christianity. And not long after that, you have Roman Catholicism which as a system incorporated this whole pagan idea of worshiping individual separate deities for certain needs that you have. And it still goes on today. I grew up Roman Catholic. I saw this all the time. I was taught from a very young age that if you want protection while you're driving in a car, you get a statue of St. Christopher. And so that's what we had in our car. And St. Christopher is the the saint, not the God, but the, the deified saint who's going to protect me while I'm driving. If we, if we lost something in the house, my mom lost something or we lost something, we would pray to St. Anthony. St. Anthony was the patron saint, the deified human being that would help me find whatever I lost. And ad infinitum it goes. This is a carryover from paganism. So you can find pockets of this in Protestantism, in Catholicism, and in all the pagan religions and all the philosophies of the world. Because it is at the core of the fall of humans misplaced worship the glory goes only to god and that's paul and barnabas's urgent message here that they didn't understand and so paul goes on at the middle of verse 15 we brought the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things don't worship people don't worship pagans don't worship uh don't worship things don't worship rocks don't worship trees don't worship humans don't worship false humanized deified gods don't worship dead people Worship the living God and only him. Then he quotes from Old Testament scripture who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. The creator God. Paul recognized 
they believed in a God, they believed in a creator. And he's trying to tell them and inform them who, the, who this true God is. You believe in a God, that's good. But let me tell you who he really is so you can put away your wrong thoughts about him. Paul is appealing to Gentiles with, get this, natural revelation. And that's many times a great way to appeal to a total pagan unbeliever who knows nothing about the Bible. Appeal to natural revelation. Creation, the conscience, the sky, the fact that God is creator. That is common ground. And then you interpret natural revelation with the Bible for them. And that's what Paul is doing. He is interpreting natural revelation for the pagan. They, don't, they aren't educated in the Old Testament. And this is how you witness to pagans. Someone asked me uh, a couple times before, how do you witness to Hindus? Because they are not steeped in Old Testament theology and scriptures. Well, you appeal to natural revelation and interpret natural revelation for them in light of scripture, authoritatively, culminating in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, and in the generations gone by, God permitted all the nations to go their own ways. God, the creator, we have the same creator. That's the common ground with pagans. We have common ground. We have the same creator. Verse 17, and yet he did not leave himself without witness. He's communicated to us through natural revelation and special revelation, and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That's natural revelation. This is the common ground we have in God, the creator. Verse 18, and when even saying these things, they with difficulty restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. So this was, this was a chore to correct their wrong thinking. It didn't happen immediately, but it definitely needed corrective proclamation from divine revelation, the Bible. And that's what we need to do with unbelievers. So we've learned two things from Paul on how to witness to people. If you run into an unbelieving Jew, what do you do? You start with the Old Testament because that's common ground. If they're really a true Jew. If they're really a true Jew and committed to Hebrew scriptures, you start there for a Jew who doesn't believe. You start there like Paul did in Acts 13, and that's exactly what Stephen did in Acts chapter 7. And then you culminate with the fulfillment of Jesus Christ who fulfilled the scriptures. If you're dealing with pagans who've never heard the Bible before, you start with general revelation. The conscience God gave, gave them, the law that God imprinted on their heart, and creation that is everywhere that we all have access to. We all have access to the same stars. We all have access to the same sky. We all have access to the same rain. We all know that God exists by virtue of conscience, and every human being was made in God's image. It's undeniable. I don't care if you say you're an atheist. I know what our common ground is. I don't care if you say you're an atheist. The Bible says you're lying. You're suppressing the truth that God has put on your heart. That's how you witness to a pagan. And that's what Paul did. Number four. Well, sometimes they get good responses. Sometimes they get bad ones. Number four is unbelief breeds life-threatening agitation. Agitation. Unbelievers hate truth unbelievers hate did i say hate yes strong word hate truth unbelievers hate truth and unless god in, intervenes by his grace with the enlightening holy spirit they will hate truth and the more they hear it the more they will hate and the more they will react verse 19 and 20 but there it is again uh-oh jews came from antioch 100 miles away iconium 40 miles away and having so here come these unbelieving Jews. They've got this was the 
lynch mob I was telling you about. They finally arrive in the city after all this takes place. And then they start commiserating and talking to people in the crowds. And they realize, oh, some people are believing Paul and Barnabas' message, but some are not believing. And so, oh, there's our candidates. We can recruit these people. And they do. So they assemble a mob to oppose Paul and Barnabas. They are successful this time because the number is so overwhelming. Multitudes, large crowds of people. Now, there are people who have believed. But you know what believers typically do? Uh, they don't they aren't violent. They don't resist. They don't start throwing rocks They have a conscience that dictates their behavior The unbeliever enraged inspired by hatred and satan himself they defy conscience if they have one at all Hence the violent aggressive reaction. That's what's going on. here. That goes on today In protests People smashing in starbucks windows Violent. Wait, why? It's a manifestation of sin and hatred. So the Jews come from Antioch and Iconium, having won over the multitudes. They stone, get this, they stoned Paul. They tried to do that in the previous city. They were not successful because Paul apparently caught wind of it and split town. And they ran quickly, got away. This time they didn't. They stoned Paul. What does that mean? Well, uh, somehow they actually physically got a hold of him. They're, this is spearheaded by the Jews. He deserved the death penalty of stoning because this comes right out of the Old Testament. He deserves to be stoned because of blasphemy. Forget the trial stuff and two or three witnesses. Let's just stone him on the spot like they did with Stephen. They grab hold of him. Sometimes stoning, they would just throw a guy into a pit and then just start dropping huge massive boulders on him until he is literally crushed under the rocks. Or they'd get him in a cave up against a wall, surrounded in some, and just start pelting until, again, he's just crushed by the rocks. They were successful with Paul this time. They got a hold of him, and they start pummeling him with rocks to the point where he crouches over, he falls over, he becomes unconscious, and he literally looks like he's dead. Maybe he got a rock in the head, and his skull is bust open, there's blood, and he's not breathing, and his eyes aren't open. They concluded immediately, oh, he's dead. And then what did they do? They dragged him out of the city, literally grabbed him, and dragged him probably by the ankles, out of the city, left him for dead. This is ironic because the same word for dragged Paul out of the city is the exact same word Acts 8.3 uses when it says Paul, who was Saul, who hated Christians, who persecuted Christians, literally was grabbing men and women Christians out of their homes, putting them in jail. What goes around comes around, Paul. And also, no doubt, this is a fulfillment of the prophecy in Acts chapter Nine, when Jesus saved Paul and said, you know what, Paul, you're going to be the apostle of the Gentiles and you are going to suffer for my sake. You're going to suffer. This is an example of that coming true. Suffering almost to the point of death. Second Timothy, at the end of his life, in chapter three, he referred to this incident, the unbelievable persecution that he faced at Iconium, Antioch and Lystra. And he's reminding Timothy of it. He's reminding Timothy, Timothy, do you remember? This is 60, 80. This is 12 years later. Paul is writing Timothy uh, in a letter to young Timothy. Timothy, do you remember what I suffered at Lystra? Timothy, your home city of Lystra. By the way, the city of Lystra, that's where Timothy was. When Paul went into this town with Barnabas, there is a young family. There's a mother and her mother, a granddaughter, or a, do, uh, a grandma, Yodia and, uh, or the mommy and daddy, Lois and Eunice, sorry. And that's Timothy's mom and grandma. They're Jewish. They believe in the Old Testament scriptures. Timothy's dad is Greek. He's not a Jew. Timothy was not circumcised because dad's rule overruled mom and grandma. Paul goes into Lystra with Barnabas at this time. This is all happening. Uh, Timothy's family is probably in the crowd. 
They're watching. They saw the miracles. Uh, Lois and Eunice, they're probably rejoicing. Praise God. So that's who Jesus is. Amen, Yahweh. Who knows what his, Timothy's dad was doing, the Greek. And maybe Timothy the teenager's there. 14, 15, 16. He's hearing this. He heard the gospel. He's being prepared. He's going to be saved. Paul comes back years later, a few years later. Timothy is a believer. He is on fire. He is mature. He wants to follow and help Paul, and he does for the rest of his life. And at the end of Paul's life, he writes in Timothy, Timothy, remember what I was subjected to when I was in your hometown, when even you thought I was dead? The reason Paul's saying that in Second Timothy is because Timothy's having a really hard time. He is undergoing persecution and he's cowering. He's losing faith. He's on the verge of compromising. He needs help. He needs an exhortation. That's what Paul's trying to do. Man, be strong. Hang in there. Powerful. So at the end of verse 19, they stone Paul, drag him out of the city. They thought he was dead, probably because he stopped breathing. He's unconscious. Left him to be dead. So they leave him alone. But after they leave, he revives. So it doesn't say he was dead. He looked as though he was dead. So he's probably unconscious. And he came back. God was gracious. Paul, I've got another 12 years of ministry for you. You're not dying yet. That day will come. But it's not now. Verse 20. But while the disciples stood around. So they're all. You can imagine Barnabas and other disciples. And with a broken heart. Ready to bury him. Weeping. And while the disciples stood around him, he arose. Boom. Opens his eye. That'd be kind of scary. But no doubt rejoicing. Great rejoicing went on. And then all of a sudden they're in protection mode. Man, Paul, we got to get you out of here. They arose, uh, entered the city. And the next day he went away with Barnabas to the next town, Derby, And that will be one of the last cities on their journey. And Paul has to recuperate and cover. Probably hobbling along. They're carrying him to the next city. God was gracious. Finally overcame that, which takes us to point number five, and that is uh, Luke's ministry summation summation of the first missionary journey comes to a conclusion. Verse 21 to 28. Verse 21 says, after they had preached the gospel to that city and Derby, so everywhere they go, they just, they don't stop preaching. It's what they do. It's what missionaries do. They preach the gospel. It's what it's all about. You can use different venues to do it. But the goal is always preaching the gospel to that city and they had made many disciples so god blesses man that is always refreshing you can go through getting stoned to death but in the next city you preach the gospel and somebody responds positively that is so encouraging and then you're on in your own hearts god it was worth it god it was worth it many disciples not a few not a couple many how encouraging for them to allow them to persevere and after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples they returned to Lystra. Are you kidding me? They returned to Lystra. It could have been weeks and weeks and weeks that had gone by. Go back to Lystra, snuck into the city for a very specific purpose, went to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Those are the, They planted churches there. So they wanted to go back and encourage the believers. 22, these are new believers. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Don't give up. And saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You're going to have it hard. I'm not going to. They're going to oppose you. The Jewish leadership, they're going to oppose you. They may come after you. They may try to kill you. Look what they did to me. This is the call of being a Christian. Verse 23. 
And when they had appointed elders, when Paul and Barnabas had appointed elders for them in every church, man, that is huge. You don't have a church unless you have a plurality of appointed elders by definition. Every time the word elder is used in the New Testament, it is in the plural. That is significant. It's not the pastor, the one and only single senior pastor at that church. He's the man. He's the Lone Ranger. The buck stops. Ooh, that's scary. Jesus is the senior pastor. Elders is always in the plural. It's always a team of men. This was true in the synagogue. It becomes and is replicated in the church. And that's what Paul and Barnabas did. They appointed elders for them in every church. Now, these churches are less than a year old. How can you appoint? These aren't, but they aren't novices. They are not immature men. You know what happened? They probably appointed Jewish older men who had studied their entire life, the Old Testament scriptures. They believed what it said. They understood who Yahweh was. They believed in Yahweh. They were looking forward to the promises of the Messiah. And then when they heard about Jesus, they believed and their faith was totally fulfilled. Yet they are seasoned, mature men rooted in the word in scripture. And therefore, some of them were qualified to be elders. These aren't just new believers, newbies who knew nothing and they have one year of revelation under their belt. So that's how they could actually appoint elders so quickly. Christianity is fulfilled Judaism. Appointed elders for them in every church, leaving a leadership intact. They became the shepherds, the pastors in every church. Having prayed with fasting, they uh, commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And they passed through Pisidia. Now they're backtracking uh, Pisidia to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, uh, they went to the next town, Atalia, verse 26. And from there, they sailed back to Antioch, their home church, Antioch in Syria. So they go back. They have now gone two years, 1,200 miles, 700 miles on land, 500 miles on sea, many trials, many tribulations, great fruit, great opposition. And they go back to their home church. And look what they do in verse 26, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished verse 27 and when they had arrived and gathered the the whole church together there at antioch together they began to report all the things that god had done you know what they had they had missions sunday at church i don't know if they had a slideshow but they had missions sunday reporting all that god had that is so important the people that are supporting you praying for you that commission and send you they need to hear it firsthand what did god do through you that's why Mission Sundays could be so powerful when you hear the testimony. They began to report all these things that God had done with them and how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. It was all about faith. It wasn't works. Faith to the Gentiles. Verse 28, and they spent a long time with the disciples. Boy, when you go on a rigorous missions trip, whether it is one week long in a foreign land or two years, you know what you need when you're done? You need some respite. You need some rest. You need some relaxation. You do. You need to be encouraged by the saints. That is hard work. It's not just physical uh, in terms of its being rigorous. It is spiritually hard work. It is draining. It is trying. There are wounds that need healing. There's a broken relationship with John Mark that needs healing. Among other things. I remember when the first time we went to Mexico, Hope House, on our exploratory missions trip, many of the folks had never been anywhere uh, in a foreign land and or to Mexico at all. And it was hard work. We were there working 10, 12 hours a day, people we didn't know in a foreign land. For I think we were there only three days. And I was so glad and comforted and relieved at the end that Walt Heine and Nancy down there said, you know, when you're done, you're going to come to our house, our nice, our air-conditioned house. 
with our cushy couches. And we're going to let you relax and cook you a meal. And it was cheeseburgers, I believe, uh, and all we could eat. And it was absolutely delicious, but it was perfect. A perfect respite to short time of hard work doing missions. And every missionary needs that. They need to be welcomed back with open arms and loving embrace by their home church community. Well, that is the end of the first missions trip. The many principles we've gleaned along the way that we can take to heart. And with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and thank him for our time together in worship with the saints. Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for the word of God, scripture, that it is reliable, that you have preserved it for us, for the true history, history that we can read from Luke's hand. the amazing courage and boldness that Paul and Barnabas had. And thank you for the reminder that they they were just men, just like we are, frail humans, depending through faith upon your strength, upon your indwelling Holy Spirit, upon the power of your word in the gospel. And we have those exact same resources and tools available to us. God, courage in our hearts with that great truth. We give you the glory. We love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.